podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dan Chronicles. This is the audio version of the email newsletter sent through Substack, which is also where I'm publishing this and then distributing it out elsewhere. And this is October of 2022. And I just wanted to say hello and and thanks for listening. This is actually a pretty big episode because this is the two-year anniversary of me launching this monthly newsletter and sending one out every single month except for one. I did skip one. Um, I'm okay with skipping one. For that month in particular, I don't know what happened, but I just didn't have too much to say. And I was like, if I don't have anything interesting to share, I'm not going to send a newsletter. And I kind of set that rule and that precedent for myself. And I like that one because I don't want to just send it just to send it. But oftentimes I do have a lot to say. And this is an example of one of those newsletters that was super easy to write just because everything sort of came to me and came to me early. So I'm recording this actually in in early October. I'm going to schedule it for uh, a couple of weeks from now, which is awesome just to have it done for the month of October, especially because this month is kind of crazy. We're throwing a big party in the middle of the month. It's my five-year wedding anniversary as well. And so that's going to be fantastic. And there is a lot, a lot, a lot of party planning to do. I mean, who knew that throwing throwing a, a party in a big venue uh, that's black tie with a photographer, we got a step and repeat, there's a pianist for the cocktail hour, there's catering, there's a bunch of stuff going on, a photographer. Um, so yeah, who knew that would be a ton of work, but it is a ton of work. And so it's nice to kind of get this done with early so that I can get it written, get it recorded, get it edited and scheduled and just kind of not have to think about it for a while. Uh, but yeah, this is the two-year anniversary. And I've taken a lot of inspiration from from a bunch of different newsletters. I've kind of mentioned a few of them in the past. I think one of the bigger inspiration ones is really the only newsletter that I still actively read. Uh, and I say actively because it sends daily and I don't read it daily. That's a lot of content. I'm kind of... I've tried a few daily newsletters over the years, and it's just too much content to consume. I just can't do it. Uh, but there's one that I haven't unsubscribed from, and that's Dave Pell's Next Draft, which he is basically the premise of the newsletter is he follows all of the news articles that come out within a 24-hour period, and he will grab a quick line from it, write a short summary of it, and he has, I don't know, like 20 different stories from just around the internet and puts it together in a single newsletter. And it's really great because you can just kind of browse through it and get a sense of what's going on. And I, I want to say in the world, but it's not really in the world. It's like the world of the internet, right? So like it, it's curated from an already curated list of information, uh, but it's really interesting. And if there's an article that catches my eye, I can click in and read it. And I found some interesting stuff there. But usually it's one that I'll just kind of peruse and see what people are talking about at any given point in time. And it's really great. And one of the things that I've kind of snatched from that newsletter is the the titles at the top of each topic. And he's really good. All of his are really witty and funny and really smart. And mine are not. But uh, it, it's kind of what I've modeled it off of, off of, although I use emojis in mine, which I guess makes me stand out. So I, I just think that's sort of fun. 
But congratulations to me, I guess, uh, for getting to two years. And we're going to keep on trucking. We're going to keep on doing it. Now it's time for the stories. One of the things I stumbled upon this month was on TikTok. And I've mentioned that I enjoy TikTok. Um, and I, I just think it's it's a good entertainment platform. I don't see it as a social media. I see it as a replacement for YouTube, a replacement for TV, a replacement for reading, for, for video games, whatever it is that people do for entertainment. That's sort of where TikTok lies. Um, and also, there's a lot of privacy things. I like TikTok because I can use it on my iPhone, and I kind of block the microphone. I block the camera. I, you know, I just block all of that stuff and and... Apple does it at their level, so I know that TikTok doesn't have access. Um, but I stumbled upon a TikTok where somebody who, who is around my age, so in the millennial category, talks about Gen Z because, because I mean, obviously TikTok is full of the younger generation and Gen Z, and a lot of their trends are kind of being set and and going out to, distributed to the world through TikTok and. They will often poke fun at millennials. I mean, it, as any younger generation does to an older generation. Uh, and one of the things that this particular video was talking about uh, was what's known as the millennial pause. And just hearing millennial pause, I didn't really know what it was. But when it was described, I knew exactly what it was. And so the millennial pause was coined by a Gen Zer, and it refers to the second or two after somebody presses record and before they start talking where they're like checking to make sure the camera is actually recording and that brief moment is the millennial pause and as soon as i heard that i was like i i recognize that i know exactly what that is and the reason it kind of came into the popular uh zeitgeist was she was making fun of taylor swift and there was a Taylor Swift video where this young girl was basically like, not even our queen Taylor Swift is immune from the the cringe millennial pause. And I thought that was just hilarious. And it kind of brought up, she wrote this longer piece for The Atlantic, and it kind of brought up all of these questions about what it means to age on the internet. Because Millennials were the first generation to really grow up on the internet and have it be home from a very early age. But that also means that we're the first generation to really grow old on the internet. And so we're kind of coming into our own as the older generation. And there's a younger group of people that also have been uh, internet native from day zero. And they're creating their new trends and they're doing, they're setting a certain precedent of certain emojis that you can and can't use in terms of, I mean, can or can't being like whether this is cringe or not. And kind of thinking about what it means to get older on the internet and are people that are older meant to sort of give up these old habits that are now kind of seen as as older generation type things and kind of behave younger or do they lean into them and, and keep doing what they're doing even though the like primary user so to speak of the internet is doing something completely different and i think that that's a question that everybody has to answer for themselves in the same way that fashion will change and will the older generation kind of also change the clothing that they're wearing to match the younger generation or is that worse and and all of these sort of things. Is there a way to do it 
in a way that is graceful. And yeah, these are all the things that we're sort of tackling right now as we have this very strong generation of young people on the internet setting all of these trends, as well as this older generation that's also been on the internet since day one and, and have their habits and have their things. And so it's just a kind of an, a really interesting thing to think about explicitly and also just to pay attention to as you are browsing the internet and as you are continuing to to age and also use the internet. So I thought it was interesting. I thought the article was interesting. So I wanted to share it with all of you. Speaking of generations, the next thing I kind of touch on was a book that I finished. I finished it last month, but really I've been thinking about it since then, just because it was absolutely fascinating. And it was called The 90s. I think I've mentioned it before, but it's by Chuck Klausterman. And he wrote about the decade of the 90s. And writing books about decades isn't new. There's books about every decade that's out there. And living through the 90s, it didn't feel different. Like it just felt like, oh, this is just how it is. But now that we're what, 20 years away from it, uh, it you can look back and kind of have those insights about what made the decade unique. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was really cool to read about was Gen X. Because I remember when I was growing up in the 90s, everything that you read was about Gen X. And they've kind of become this I don't want to say lost, but never talked about generation, right? It's all baby boomers, millennials, and Gen Z. And there is Gen X in there. They just don't get talked about that much. And so kind of grappling with why that is and where they fit into the puzzle was a really interesting aspect of the book. Because I I mean, when you think about Gen X, you think of uh, bucking the establishment and who can care the least and and grunge music and and fighting the anything that was established and popular and and really that has left them out the generation as a whole out from a lot of the conversation because it was just cool to not care and that is sort of what the 90s was about that's what i remember from the 90s and having that explored in detail was really fascinating. But one of the things that I pull out from the book was specifically around the Mandela effect, which if you don't know, the Mandela effect is basically an entire group of people remembering history differently than an entirely different group of people. And it was named because half of the population remembered Mandela dying uh, I forget what year it was. I'm, I don't have the Mandela effect in front of me, but they remembered him dying at a certain point when he didn't actually die. And then he died later. And when he actually died, everybody was like, wait, I thought he already died. And then they were able to find other people that also had this memory of him dying. And so it kind of created this split where half of the people were like, no, it happened differently. And then half of the people were like, no, this is history. This is literally what you can read about. And it's proven. And that has happened all over the place. I think one of the other big ones that I specifically remember is the Berenstein versus the Berenstain Bears, and whether it was spelled with an A or an E. And I remember Berenstein, but reality is that it was Berenstain. And I think 
the Mandela effect is super interesting, but I never really thought about it in the context of the 90s because I feel like the Mandela effect is a uniquely 90s phenomenon. And I think the reason why that is, is the 90s was an interesting time because there was this sense of, uh, I don't want to say mystery, but like not uncertainty, right? Is there was information that existed in the world, but you wouldn't necessarily have access to it at the tip of your fingers, right? Like if you wanted to know a celebrity's birthday or a celebrity's age, you just kind of like wondered about that and then went on with your day. And maybe weeks, months later, maybe you find a magazine and it has the actual number, or maybe you ask a friend and they're like, oh, this person's 43. And then you're like, okay, well, they're 43. And you kind of lived with that uncertainty. And that was the human condition for almost all of history. And then you had the internet come along and you have all of the information at the tip of your fingers. And suddenly this uncertainty is gone and you are 100% certain and you're okay. Like you just come to accept that as your reality. And I think the Mandela effect is a unique outspring of that in that in the past, if you thought it was Berenstein, but it was really Berenstain, and before the internet, you could just be like, oh, okay, well, I, I had it wrong, and accept that there was some sort of uncertainty inherent in the realities of living. But after the internet and all the information is there, you're like, no, I remember it being Berenstein, therefore it must have been Berenstein. And you have all this certainty there. And all of these sort of memories um, from the Mandela effect, either when they happened or where the memories are from, happened in the 90s. And that was kind of interesting to read about and dig into. And I think about, I, I think that that has helped me contextualize a lot of what I kind of see around the internet as uh, the the different Mandela effects in, in different categories. I read this really interesting article. Uh, I mentioned him a few times, Nate Eliason. I, I think he creates some interesting content. I don't agree with him with everything, but from time to time, we'll have some cool articles. But he, for a while, was participating in what widely is known as the creator economy. And he wrote this article just completely eviscerating the creator economy. So he started as like a, a PKM, personal knowledge management writer. He wrote about this application, the SaaS application called Rome, which basically was a note-taking app. But what set it apart was you could do connected notes. So rather than notes being sort of date stamped, notes could be tied to each other by certain words and kind of how to set that up to be best optimized to match how your brain actually works. And since then, there's a lot of different applications. I've switched over to Obsidian, which I still use every day. I write my newsletter in it. I'm, I'm looking at it right now to, to read this back to you. But it, it's all based on kind of connected notes rather than date-based notes. And so he kind of got started writing about Rome and then making courses on Rome. And then he kind of got into the world of crypto, which was kind of weird, but he did like a, a course on crypto. But he started making more and more content for like YouTube and kind of participating in this creator economy. But if you participate in the creator economy, which I sort of did for a little bit, I had a website called Novice No Longer. I started with kind of website tutorials and stuff like that. And the more you're in there, the more you just realize it's a big scam, which is kind of why I got out of it, because the the algorithm and the audience 
basically rewards certain types of content. And the content that it rewards is basically like, oh, you created this course that makes a lot of money. Now you have to create a course on creating a course and then teach others to make a lot of money. And it's this whole Ouroboros where all of the content creators are simply creating content that help other people become content creators. And it's this big, huge scam. And I think just perfectly articulated in this article by him. But it it really spoke to me and it made me think back to this older article from several years ago about how to eat free in New York City using Instagram and automation. And there was this dude who used data science and programming to make an application that would take in photos of New York City and then kind of figure out what the photos were put one of several different captions on it, use certain hashtags, and then post them with permission and with credit to his Instagram blog. And then he would gain an audience by automating the fact of like finding people and then following them and then waiting a certain period and then unfollowing them with the hopes that they'll find your Instagram account and then follow you back. And he was able to use this sort of program to build a giant audience. And then once he had a giant audience, he then automated reaching out to different restaurants being like, hey, can I feature your restaurant on my Instagram? It has X number of followers in exchange for a free meal. And a certain percentage of those restaurants said yes. And so he built up this whole inventory of places that he could eat for free all over the city. And really ingenious thing, especially because he could automate it. But I always use this as an example of people that are interested in building an audience online about how absolutely brutal it is. Because everything in his article, the article itself is sort of technical, but everything in the article is something that you can do manually. Like if you you put in the work, you put in the hours, you can get it done and you can build this audience. But it is so impractical and it is so impossible. And literally, it's like the best way to build an audience. And so you see these people with these giant audiences and you just have this new appreciation for the amount of work that went into building that. And so I always think about the creator economy and I always think about this article and I always kind of reference this article if anybody's talking about building an audience online, just because I think I mean, I guess both of these, one is a warning and the other one, well, they're both warnings, but the first one by Nat Eliason is kind of like a warning against where to get sucked into because it's going to be so easy to get sucked into the creator economy, Ouroboros. And the second is just a warning about how much hustle you are going to need to have to build an audience. And so... I don't know. I ran into it this month. I thought it was interesting and I wanted to share it with you guys in case anybody is thinking about building an audience online because it's it's absolutely insane. It's a lot of work. Next, I touch on something that's a little bit um well it's 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 super fascinating to me. So this month they awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics to three physicists who discovered uh, this this super interesting thing about the universe and about quantum mechanics. And I actually think it's not that difficult. I mean, to understand the, the intricacies is super complex, but to get a high-level understanding of what's going on is not that complex, which 100% is the reason why I can even wrap, start to wrap my head around this. Uh, and also, I've definitely been on a quantum mechanics kick 
recently, a, a few months ago, I read uh, The Order of Time by Carlo Rovielli. And then I was like, you know what, let me read the the foundational book. So I read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. Uh, and I can't say I understood 100%, but I definitely understood more than I expected, which was awesome. And so this discovery and this Nobel Prize fits very nicely within that foundation that I set up. So to try to explain it to you in case you're interested, and if not, I guess skip ahead. Um, but up until the 1920s, we had these set of rules for physics, right? And they kind of explained the the larger universe. So like planets and the solar system and, and the entire universe, right? If we we could calculate where exactly the moon would be at a certain date at a certain time, right? And if you kicked a ball and you knew all of the information about the velocity and speed and the wind and all these different factors, if you had all of the information, you could tell exactly where it was going to be. But as soon as the technology got there to be able to use microscopes to study subatomic particles and these atoms, all of those physics rules went out the window and, and we couldn't predict anything. And so this new field popped up of quantum mechanics. And the main difference between established uh, physics and quantum mechanics was that you take all of the same inputs on the atomic level, and instead of getting an exact answer about where something's going to be, you have a probability. So you have kind of like a range and you're like, okay, well, we there's a probability that this atom will be here that's 40%. And if you perform the experiment enough, it will be 40%. And so it's accurate, but it's a probability. And so around this time, you had people like Albert Einstein, very smart dude, but he thought that quantum mechanics was kind of a transitional theory or understanding. So he thought that with enough information, we could calculate exactly. There was just information that we're missing. So once we discover that information, we can start getting exact and we won't have to have probability. The fact that there was probability in quantum mechanics meant that we just didn't have enough information. And so one of the ways that he sort of refuted this was to publish papers, basically using the math in quantum mechanics to express things that were obviously impossible, right? And I think uh, somebody else did this as well. You might be more familiar with Schrodinger's cat, where you have a cat in a box and you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead until you open up the box and you observe the cat. And once you observe the cat, you'll know whether it's alive or dead. But until then, the cat is 50% alive or 50% dead, according to quantum mechanics. And he created this thought experiment because he thought that it was an absolutely ridiculous thing, right? Like, obviously, the cat in the box is either alive or dead. You just don't have all the information, right? If you were able to get the information without opening the box, you would know whether the cat was alive or dead. And so this is why quantum mechanics was not the full picture. And Albert Einstein had a similar thought, and he published his paper that's known as ERP that basically showed two particles uh used he used the math in quantum mechanics to show two particles that were entangled traveling light years away but being able to talk to each other instantly which nothing can travel faster than the speed of light so there was no way for that information to travel from one particle to the other however 
uh, with quantum mechanics, it was possible. So he's like, okay, well, this is just a hole and we're going to have to figure this out. And once we can figure this out, like we can come up with a new theory to replace quantum mechanics and we'll have a, a full picture of it. And so the Nobel Prize this year basically took this ERP paper about these two particles that are theoretically 20 light years away, hundred like a lot of light years away, talking to each other instantly. And they actually proved, hey, these two particles can talk to each other. They can communicate with each other instantly from light years away. Uh, and so that means this information is theoretically traveling light years, or the larger ramification is on the the subatomic like level, our sense and our understanding of distance isn't what reality is, right? So when you're talking about atoms and you're talking about particles like this, distance isn't a thing. They're operating on this whole different level where they are together, even if we observe them as being light years apart. And so just absolutely wild what's happening in the quantum world and the fabric that makes up our reality. And this is a huge discovery. And I think one of the things that's super interesting about this discovery is that it has implications or applications that can be used right now. And so there's applications for this in quantum computing and quantum communication, and people are already using whatever was discovered in this Nobel Prize winning discovery in practical uses. And so reality is is absolutely crazy and it's absolutely fascinating and i enjoy digging into it if you couldn't tell from my talking in this section but yeah good for them and i i'm excited to kind of learn more as we discover more about what's happening on this crazy uh subatomic level where things that are very far apart to us are not far apart at all Lastly, I discovered a really fun new weather app. It's called Mercury Weather. I think it's iOS only, so I'm sorry if you don't have an iPhone. Um, but previously, I was using Carrot Weather, which is fun. It's smart, snarky. It has a bunch of information in it, more than you could ever use. Uh, but Mercury Weather is just great. It has the the current weather in, in big letters at the top. It shows hourly forecast of, of rain, of temperature, and it shows just a, a quick forecast about the highs and the lows for the next week. And it's really wonderful. Although I will say, um, there's, I don't know, there's like, I don't know, 20 different sources that application developers can use for weather and mercury weather uses one that doesn't have the best accuracy. And I've actually run into an issue with that recently because I checked mercury weather and it was like, okay, it's going to rain in 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, I have time to run to the store. And then I was outside and it immediately started raining. I looked at carrot weather and carrot weather was like, yep, it was already starting. And I was like, okay, well, I guess we know that there's like a 10 minute gap between these two data sources for weather. So if I need minute to minute accuracy, I'll continue to check carrot. But otherwise, uh, mercury weather is fantastic. And that's just what I'm using. And that's it for uh, this month's newsletter, October 2022. I hope you had fun listening um, wow, looks like we're at the 27 mark now. This is one of the longer ramblings that I've had, but it was a fun month. It was a fun newsletter. I'm happy with this one. And I will see you all next month. Next month.